Welcome to the Clemson Dubcast, Friday, November 11th. Wow, what a difference a week makes. What a difference a beatdown in South Bend makes. A lot of questions and concerns rising to the surface here this week in advance of Louisville's visit to Death Valley. And at TigerIllustrated.com, we are covering every angle of that as everyone tries to figure out Man, where do they go from here? I have no idea, to be honest with you. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold, based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Football season is grilling season and Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio is South Carolina's premier source for the big three. Weber, Traeger, and Big Green Egg Grills. Blackstone Griddles too. I'm Jack Oliver. Grill all your tailgate favorites to perfection with a premium gas, charcoal, or pellet grill then top it all off with something sizzling from your Blackstone Griddle. For grills, griddles, patio furniture, hot tubs, and saunas, shop in store or online at Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio, Forest Drive in Columbia, and jackoliverpools.com. I'm Josh Burrell, receiver and running back for the Florida State Seminoles. When I'm back home in the Midlands, I enjoy grilling and relaxing with my family, and we get everything we need from Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio. Thanks, Josh. I'm Jack Oliver, and we proudly offer the Big Green Egg, Weber, and Traeger Grills, Blackstone Griddles, and beautiful patio furniture, too. We're located at 3303 Forest Drive in Columbia and online at jackoliverpools.com. And we deliver. They're good people. Go see them today. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Okay, to our conversation, David Hale, fairly frequent guest on the podcast. Always interesting, always entertaining, and also a really funny guy. All right, enjoy. Here we go. All right, David Hale of ESPN.com joining us. You've been trying to kick a sickness for the last couple of weeks? I got got the black lung <laughs> down the mines. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, whatever everybody else has, I think not COVID and not the flu, but the third thing that everybody else has, that's what I've got. I think it is all over the place here. My family has had it, uh, whatever, one of those things, um, daughter can't kick it. Mysterious vomiting. 
Uh, that was the name of my third album, Mysterious Vomiting, and it did not sell well. <laughs> Some people would joke, that's the name of all of your articles, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when my podcast launches, that's we've got a name for it now, which is good. How do you uh how do you manage checking what what's your how much discipline do you have with because you want to know what people think but how often do you look to i guess twitter is the obvious platform to see what people think for you yeah this is um this is like we could go down a deep psychological wormhole here um i I've tried to do that less. Like I realize that it is like a drug for me. Like I need like all journalists um, and maybe all creative people in general, you need constant feedback and reassurance and being told that you're good enough. And then Twitter provides a little bit of that surrounded by a whole lot of, no, you're an idiot. (laughs) And so your entire like, well-being is being determined by the whims of complete strangers and so i've tried to to frame a better perspective on it i mean the nice thing about espn like we don't ever hear like what kind of traffic our stories are like i'm not you know people can call it clickbait or whatever i'm never i don't know how many clicks a story that i write ever gets so i promise you when i say something dumb it is not clickbait <laughs> it's just me being dumb it's so interesting we're the way we're wired as humans, you know, you can have 50 people saying, David, that was an amazing story. Great job. But then that's that one person who says, why did you have to say that in that pair that you have to rip that one player in that paragraph? You're an idiot. And you, you, you gravitate to that guy and you think, and and that's what's on your mind more than the, uh, you know, you hear a lot of people say, like, uh, you, you know, they're their own worst critic. And I, and I think that's largely true of me. But and every now and again, somebody will criticize something and I'll be like, damn it, they're right. Like, that's <laughs> the one that really gets me. Like, I, you know, when people, you can, especially in sports, like people are just irrational about their teams and I get that. But like sometimes people will make a criticism and I'll be like, I really, they're, that's, that's spot on. And it just rips my heart out. And, I don't want to talk to people for like a week because I'm so angry at myself about it. Um, but I read, I read something one time that, uh, and I'm going to totally like mangle what this was, but something to the effect of like the key, there's three keys to job satisfaction. And one is like creative involvement. So like you have a say over what your product looks like, whatever that product is. Um, Two is something I've now forgotten. And three is like a feedback loop that tells you whether you're doing good or not. Um, and I think that uh, it would be better if I remembered what that second thing is. Let's just assume I, money. That's probably it. Um, but like there's, you have to have some level of satisfaction in your job. And part of satisfaction is people telling you that you're good enough. Um, and some of us require more of it than others. Uh, and I honestly think you can apply that to sports too. And I think this is a lot of what, you know, coaches and managers, like that's what their job is, is to sort of provide you with that feedback loop. Um, And I always am sort of thrown by the coaches who are all like just sort of one way hard asses with their players. 
because I got to think like, I don't have a speck of athletic talent, but if I did, I am not someone I don't, don't think who would be well, like motivated by being just like yelled at all the time. Like I would kind of crawl into my hole and want to die. And I am motivated by this like thirst for your approval though. And so like, I, I just, I always wonder how like cognizant of the psychology coaches and managers are. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole, a big can of, I mean, that's a, such a huge topic with coaches having to navigate, you know, like for instance, this week, and we'll get to this, of course, but you know, Dabo, there are Clemson fans who are kind of irritated that he's sort of dug in a bit, you know, and been like, hey, we're, we're eight and one. And, you know, DJ's played some good football and they don't realize that he's got to balance the criticism that he's delivering internally. And he is absolutely delivering it internally with what he says publicly. He's got to, he's got to both scrutinize heavily while also, you know, keeping them together uh, culturally, you know, and that's a, that's such a, that's such a tough thing to navigate. You know, it's funny because I think this is one of the reasons that outside of the locker room, the perception is so much different of Dabo than it is inside the locker room is that the public facade is always so upbeat and positive. And whether you're talking about stuff like, social justice and uh you know that stuff that went on or whether you're talking about the transfer portal or paying players or whether you're talking about how dj played in a game like the rest of us on the outside want him to kind of level with us or embrace the fact that some of it stinks and hasn't been good and needs addressing it as a problem but inside the locker room like they already know right yeah and so what they need is knowing that their coach has their back and so he just has this like, like relentlessly optimistic approach to everything. And I think it rubs people the wrong way when you are one who wants to embrace some of the bad and, you know, maybe in our jobs wallow in it a little bit, but at the very least to say like, this is bad. We need to acknowledge it before we can make it better. Um, and he just won't do that. Like that's just uh, publicly, at least he won't do that. And so I think it provides this sense of frustration for people Uh, But in the locker room, I think everybody loves and appreciates the fact that he has their back no matter what. Except for Andy Teasdall. That's the one guy (laughs) who he never never had his back. (laughs) You know, a great example that came up actually last week is the 2016 team. Dabo brought it up. This is before the Notre Dame loss, but he's basically saying, you know, this this team reminds me of that 16 team in that they, they just they make life so hard on on themselves and they can't put a complete game together. Of course, the circumstances are different because the 16 team, their issue was boredom for half the more than half the year. Mm-hmm. That's not the issue with this, this year's team. They're not good enough no. to be bored. But he acknowledges now that how frustrating that season was. But in the moment, man, if you even suggested – that that team was going through the motions, he would bite your head off. He actually yeah. did a few times. Well, it's funny. We, uh, we, Andrea Adelson and I do a show on ACC network every Thursday. Uh, and we just did one and every week, because this is the last year of divisions, we do, uh, a favorite moment from the coastal division over the years. 
uh, and today's one was the Pittsburgh loss, uh, which was the last time Clemson lost at home. And I can remember explicitly, you know, because they they got stuffed on third and one and fourth and one that would have iced the game. And, you know, I remember specifically like talking to Dabo afterwards about like the offensive failures in that game. And he's like, what do you mean offensive failures? <laughs> Deshaun Watson threw for 974 yards. What are you talking about, son? And it's just like, you know, I get it. But that's, I mean, that's just how he operates. Well, another example, I, I sent my poor intern to the Wednesday post-practice after that pit loss. It was my fault for not being able to read the room or at least read the coach during a tough time. But I asked my intern, hey, why don't you ask him <laughs> when they're going to get, if they're planning on getting Deshaun more involved in the running game. And, oh, man, he just lost it, absolutely lost it. And I think I don't think there's any video of it because I think everybody just agreed this is Riley Morningstar, actually, who's now the editor of the Seneca newspaper and who's doing a fantastic job. But, uh, yeah, Dabo would probably look back now and say, yeah, it was probably a good <laughs> good question to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but back to the, uh, the Twitter and all that, I and I've, I've actually noticed, I went to your feed, a couple, I guess, earlier today, and you don't post as much either. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with you, David. Uh, I, you you, know, you're doing well. Yeah. I, um, I, I'm trying to have, I think maybe I got, you know, I got two little kids now and I think maybe that gives you some perspective on the world that you didn't have before. And, uh, I'll, I'll mix it up every now and again, just, and that's really out of boredom. Like I'm doing this for my own spite at this point, you know, but like, it's just, I think part of it is just, you, I, I look back, like I look back. I should probably like be one of those celebrity type people who just goes back and wipes out their Twitter from, you know, anything beyond a year ago, because I bet it's all horribly embarrassing to look back and think about the dumb arguments you got <laughs> drug into. Um, but it's just, you know, I, I, I don't know what it accomplishes. This is, I, I, I think I've sort of, sort of tried to wrap my head around the fact that like, um, there's only so many hours in the day and, and beating your head against the wall is just the worst possible use of that time. Yeah. I, I had a, I guess the revelation a while back, I don't know what it was, but I think it was, it was, it, it, it was like, okay, if I'm, if I'm thinking about this during this argument that I'm in during dinner, <laughs> you know, right. with my family yeah. or walking my dog in the morning, then I should at least be arguing with somebody who's paying my salary on my website, you know, like, uh, participating on my message board versus Twitter with some random guy. I don't even, I have no idea who that is, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I like, I just, it's funny cause I find myself like being annoyed by people who I agree with lately on Twitter, like, like people who I like largely have a lot in common with philosophically, politically, culturally, whatever. And I'll see them like having these arguments and, and largely I agree with what they're saying, but I just find it so insufferable that I'm just like, I, even this, like I agree with you and I'm, I'm still over it. I don't want to do it. All right. What is, uh, but, a Thursday in November, the life of David Hale. You you had to go do a TV spot. Uh, where was that? That I guess that wasn't at your house. That was somewhere at, at a station no, in Charlotte. It, what? It was at it was at my house. Oh, it at it your was, house. Was, yeah. So when you see me on TV, that is like the actual bookshelf in my office. And I, I like I'm trying to. I don't really have any sort of. I mean, if if I was one of those people who was who like 
had enough influence culturally that people like zoomed in to see what books were on my bookshelf and probably be <laughs> fairly embarrassing. Um, but yeah, no, it's just, so like, this is, I've got a, an iPhone and an iPad. Uh, so the iPhone is like the camera. Uh, the iPad is like the returns, which is all done via zoom. And then I've got like an earpiece plugged into like my personal phone. Uh, and the whole process somehow works. I don't really understand any of it. I've got one of those ring lights to make sure that everybody can see just how to, it's funny. So like we take this show, um, like right before it airs. So I taped it and then I went downstairs and my wife had ACC network on like on our big TV in our living room. And I'm like, Oh my God, (laughs) you should never ever have to see me in that large of a format. Um, so yeah, no, it's all very, uh, DIY. Who, who, what show did you appear on? Uh, so this is in play, which is ACC networks, like, lead into the Mark Pauker three hour power hour, um, which I, so this is, I'll be talking about my pay grade here, but the, one of the big messages among from ACC schools to the network was they wanted more football focused programming, uh, this season. So, um, in play is sort of like the lead in show, but it was sort of the, the value add of like, let's get more very football specific content out there. So, uh, there's different hosts every day. Um, our pal Roddy Jones does, uh, one or two of them a week, Kelsey Riggs, Drew Carter. Um, so every day, anyway, me and Andrea Adelson do Thursdays. So, uh, for a half an hour and then it repeats again. Uh, if you didn't get enough of your fill of me and Andrea in one half of an hour, you can repeat the whole thing over again um, at the three thirty time slot. So anyway, this is, uh, yeah, something that they decided to do this year to try to create more football focused content for ACC network, which I strongly applaud. I think um, one of the biggest problems that this league faces is that even within the league, there's sort of uh, a lot of like just taking for granted that, that they don't belong on the same stage as the SEC, like as much as they might say otherwise. And I think the best thing you can do is talk about ACC football more. And the more you do that, I think the more the narrative comes around to seeing positives within the league rather than, you know, what is the usual narrative around the league? It seems problematic that the conference has to be reminded by its schools that football <laughs> It's important. I mean, this is, has this not been like sort of the conversation, you know, there's a lot of people who said like, but why is Jim Phillips moving the headquarters? I think a big part of that was because it was about addressing the, the constant thought of like, we're a basketball conference that is all worried about the triangle in North Carolina and not into the other stuff. Uh, And I don't think that that was always as true as people thought it would be, but it's about sort of the mindset. I mean, like, The SEC is selling SEC football 365 days a year, and I don't think any other conference does that. I think the ACC is smart to be trying to do a better job of it. And this year's a really good example where, like, I'm not sure that the narrative sells itself anywhere in the ACC right now, right? Like, there's not a Georgia, and it hasn't had the Tennessee upstart, and it doesn't have, you know, the normal Clemson season of, like, yes, they're absolutely dominating people. Um, but it's got eight teams that have won six games already. And there's some good stories within that. I mean, Louisville, who Clemson plays this week, has come back and won four in a row and has a 
great recruiting class for next year. I mean, NC State, the way they have battled through adversity this year has been really something. What Mike Elko has done to turn Duke around is really impressive. Like, somebody's got to tell that story. And uh, I just don't think that was happening en- enough. And I, you know, I'm not pointing the finger of blame at anybody in particular, other than to just say, like, let's get out in front and start doing it more. You came to Clemson a couple of weeks ago when they played Syracuse. Um, your your routine, you, you came for two nights. You stayed in Greenville. You do your wrap-up, which is very involved, um, very difficult also, um, to try to cover everything and try to find – you don't want to miss really interesting things that happen. So can you give a window into that process, and is it easier for you to just stay home rather than – Mm-hmm. driving to Greenville, going to a game where there are tons of distractions just within that game. Um, I mean, I was after that game, I'm thinking, wow, man, I would – I'm glad I don't have that job because it was a hell of a game by itself here uh, in Clemson, and then you're having to monitor so much else. And then you – was your process, you, you do a lot of that article while you're at the stadium, and then you go to your back to your hotel and finish it up late Saturday night? Yeah, um, it's so if I'm at a game like that, it, I mean, it is it's difficult because you're like, how do you not watch the thing that's right in front of you? Um, but you are kind of having to monitor what else is going on. Um, you know, last last weekend was another good example of this where I'm just at home. But there's like five pretty big games happening all at the same time with, um, you know, Clemson losing and Alabama losing. And, um, you know, all the stuff that's happening at what Florida state and Miami. And, and so it's just, I mean, it's, it, it is trying to keep enough attention to not be lost, but not so much attention that you're tuning out other things. Um, I don't know if I actually have like a process or a balance to it. I think it just like, it is one of those things that it's like, uh, you go into this fever dream state and then you wake up and it's done <laughs> and you don't know how it happened. Um, so that's, you know, I, I try to take something from the noon games to really build sort of a column around so that that can be sort of a foundational thing that we've got that. Then I start adding and adding and adding. And, but I mean, I've this year kind of torn up stuff that I've written and rewritten it and rewritten completely different things. You know, I used to cover baseball for a while before college football. And it's like every Saturday is sort of like covering an extra innings game. It's like, you're sort of writing and writing and hoping that the game ends and then it doesn't. And then you delete everything that you just wrote and rewrite it again because the story is constantly changing as the as the games keep going um i i and i have said to my editors many times um i hate doing this it's awful (laughs) uh but um you know it's it's also fun and it's one of the things that you get to do that is um you know truly national i mean the good thing about working at espn is like you're you're you can write something like I have a Drake May story out today where you put it out there for a national audience, but there's still only so many like non North Carolina fans that are going to sit down and read 3000 words or whatever on Drake May. But like, that's the one like type of thing that I'm writing on a regular basis where like a lot of people read it. And I think when you're a writer and you get into this business, like what you hope is to like have an audience that size one day. Um, so it's one of the few things that I do that actually has that audience, whether it, um, is a good uh, vision of myself that I'm putting before that giant audience or not? I don't know, um, and it is a miserable experience trying to put it together. But I, you know, you take what you can get. So that weekend that you came to Clemson, um, 
you, you like so you, obviously you have a family, you have two kids at home. What was it about coming that uh, uh, gave you something that you couldn't get sitting on the couch? Like what was the what was the what was the appeal for sort of the professional part uh, of the yeah. Coming? You know, this is a good question, and I tend to think that Saturdays have less and less appeal than they used to. Um, I think part of it is just sort of the fact that you can say you were there at bigger games, like having a presence. Um, but I don't know what that actual value add is from that. I, you know, there's uh, when you can we have field access before a game. There's upside to that, and you know, there's you go run into the AD or the commissioner will be around, and you can you know, get some information out of that, or at least kind of help shore up relationships. I think there is something to be said for really kind of comprehending the energy in the stadium. And and that's one of those things like that Syracuse game is a perfect example of one that like, if you didn't sit down and really watch that game and you just look at the final score or the highlights, I think you're going to tell a much different story than what actually happened in that game, which was Clemson dominated that game from start to finish except they kept turning the ball over, which ruined some some very good drives and set up easy scores for uh, Syracuse. I mean, there was not a drive in that game pretty much where they stopped themselves, like or they, where they were stopped. They kept stopping themselves. Um, and that's, that, like, that should have been the takeaway from that game. That's what, part of what bothers me when you're, like, as people are talking about Clemson now, and I'm not in any way erasing the fact that there are some significant concerns if you're Clemson right now. But it's like, oh, well, look, they get whitewashed by Notre Dame right after having this terrible game against Syracuse. Well, no, it wasn't a terrible game against Syracuse. Well, in fact, like the Notre Dame score is partially propped up by uh, special teams blunder and two bad turnovers. Like, take away the self-inflicted wounds, and Clemson is essentially the same Clemson everybody was excited about three weeks ago. Um so I think that, and, and you know, you start talking about like the the committee and then putting together rankings and stuff, and and I think this is where like having a human element and people actually watching the games matters a ton because you have to understand sort of the the give and take that happens throughout the course of a game. I mean, we'll we'll watch the highlights of five plays and say that told the story of the game, but it really doesn't. Yeah, that that's a, a such a great point because. I'll cite an example, the Wake Forest-Louisville game. Um, you know, when you're just sitting there looking at it from a surface level, it's like, oh, my God, Sam Hartman just fell apart. You know, what a horrible game by Hartman. But I actually sat down and watched that game this past Sunday night, and it's like, wow, that Louisville defense really yeah. – they caused a lot of those turn. I mean, like – the the havoc they wreak just with their pressures is is really so I come away with it going not saying oh man Sam Hartman was just a bum in that game it was more like wow Clemson better buckle up and get shore up their protections or else they could face the same thing and this is I think again like sort of talking about playoff committee and all of that and uh, you know this we narrow everything down to like this minuscule like few little sound bites or whatever that tells a story but I think college football more than probably any other sport um, requires you to invest in watching a game like you just said, because, um, you know, the sample size is so small. You get 12 of these a year to judge a team on. And, and frankly, the matchups of actual capable teams, you're really talking about somewhere between probably five and eight games a year of like actual good competition. And 
fluky weird things can happen and like if you're uh, this is my biggest frustration in how we sort of analyze teams is we tend to like look at the wrong things and so i'll give you another example of this is uh our, our pal cole kublik who is excellent at his job and i'm not saying he was wrong in saying this but was pointing out how great caleb williams has been this year because he's got like 400 some pass attempts or whatever, 300 some pass attempts and only one interception all year. And that's true. That is good. But go look at uh, something like passes defended. How many times did a, a corner or DB get hands on one of his passes? Because on average, one out of every seven or eight passes defended will get intercepted. Well, he's got the same number of passes defended this year as Spencer Petras does, but only one of his has gotten picked off. A lot of that is luck. And again, I'm not saying that you should knock Caleb Williams because he's had good interception luck, but you should understand watching a game that like he hasn't been exactly like precise on every single throw the way that that stat line might make it look. And if you haven't watched the games, if you haven't seen him play or you don't know some of the advanced numbers to look into, this is just information you're not going to have. Another example of that would be Watching Jameer Gibbs versus just looking at a box score. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you watch that kid, it's like, oh my God, this is like almost like Reggie Bush type stuff. Yeah, how is Bill O'Brien not understand? <laughs> how is he the only one that doesn't know this? I like it is insane that he is not getting a ton more touches. And when Bryce Young gets hurt and misses essentially a game and a half. And Jameer Gibbs goes off and is the best player in the country, clearly. And then Bryce Young comes back and it's like, oh, we don't have to give that guy the ball anymore. Like, Bill O'Brien is a – I don't understand Bill O'Brien. And the agent that he has that keeps floating his name out there for every <laughs> damn job that opens up deserves a much heckier cut of whatever job he ends up getting. I'll say uh, they are so pedestrian – at receiver that doesn't really defend bill o'brien i guess as much but i my my point is or was uh i actually i think i made it on twitter um can you imagine if they had their normal complement of elite receivers plus bryce young plus jameer gibbs i mean it'd be they'd be averaging 55 points a game um but somebody says something like oh what about Najee harris it's like i think i think what i forgot i I, I forgot what the what exactly I said, but I mean, not, Najee Harris was a great back, but he's not what Jameer Gibbs no. potentially yeah. is it, it, with with a you know an elite star-studded supporting cast, which he doesn't have, and obviously, and also he doesn't have a doesn't appear to be a competent offensive coordinator because I think their yards per carry is the highest of the Saban era this year. <laughs> yeah, and they're running it the least. Yep, that's amazing. And, and, like, you know, the thing you mentioned about the receivers, like, this was pretty obvious. Like, I was making note of this over the summer. If you watched them when uh, Jamison Williams or Mechie were hurt at all last year, when either of them wasn't on the field, that offense didn't know what to do. Yeah. And I, I, I think partially this, and, and this is kind of reflective on Clemson, too, is, like, this just goes to show you how hard it is to sustain. Like, it's not just about getting the four and five stars every year, like, Sustaining that when you're having that level of attrition is hard to do. Uh, and they put what eight receivers in the first or second round over the last few years like that. Yeah, it happens. It's hard to keep replenishing the, the uh, pantry like that. 
What's really staggering is if you look at the receiving roster, the combined receiving roster of the 2018 National Championship game between Alabama and Clemson. I mean, just filthy, filthy talent. And now it's so ordinary. And, you know, another fascinating part of it is, is you know, it's, as Saban has, you know, gone to the portal the last couple of years, the conclusion that you and I and just about everybody else has made has been, oh, man, he's just going to – he's just cherry-picking. And now, I mean, just stacking talent on top of talent. But the real story, and, and tell me if you agree – the reality appears to be he was going to the portal because they had recruiting misses at all those positions at running back, yeah. DB, offensive line, receiver, maybe even linebacker. Uh, some wow, just amazing. I mean, that, that's like Nick Saban. I was saying this to somebody earlier. Like I think he is better at his job than anyone has ever been at any job. Like it's it's not sufficient to say he's just the best college football coach ever. I think he's better at being a college football coach than anyone has ever been at anything. Um, that like, he is so good, but like, there's just parts of the job you cannot do on your own. And when you have constant staff turnover and when you're losing a half dozen extra guys than other, every other team to early entry in the draft every year, like, and when recruits are coming in sort of thinking that they have a certain level of success because they're wearing the Bama Jersey, like, these things are hard to overcome and he's overcome them much longer than he had any right to do. And it doesn't surprise me, I guess that it's partially we're saying it's catching up to him. I mean, they've lost two games by a total of what four points. Like it ain't like they've just fallen off the, the face of the earth. But to your point, again, you sit down and watch Alabama in context down after down and it is not the same Alabama team that we saw two years ago by any stretch of the imagination. And I dare say that if you don't have – I mean, we're talking about what they don't have at receiver and, and, and where they're, they're diminished from their normal standards, but you can also go the other way and say if they don't have the best quarterback in the country and the best quarterback of the Saban era right now, they, they got four losses. Yeah, and probably did last year too. Yeah. I mean, there was that Auburn game and the LSU game last year. Bryce Young bailed them out on his own pretty much. And like, that's why anybody who wants to naysay Bryce Young, like you ain't been paying attention. Like I, you, whatever the numbers are, they are, but like they're better with him than by a wide margin than they would have been with anybody else. Um, so yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, it, it and, and this is sort of the, the other, the other flip side to that. And, and this is, I think why some people get annoyed when, there's the, well, I mean, Alabama, oh, they only lost two games. It was closer. Oh, Clemson still won 10 games last year. Like, yeah, it's it's hard when you have a really big safety net for the bottom to completely fall out. Like, you have some wiggle room at programs like this, um, which is good. It's And that is the effort that you have put in over years of accumulating that talent. But eventually it does catch up with you. And I mean, we've seen that at Miami. We've seen that at Florida State. We've seen that at Texas. Like, it's it is real hard to always reload and never have to rebuild. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area, and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, 
commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to UptownRealtySC.com. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm Smith and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-35. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. I wrote something earlier this week, sort of trying to assess the psyche of Clemson fans right now. And my sort of premise was that it's not, the pain is not just from getting boat raced uh, by an unranked team and just looking totally outclassed when you had no expectation of, of that result, but it's, the bigger picture is, you know, like three years ago, maybe less than three years ago, the feeling uh, felt like a legitimate feeling among Clemson fans and people elsewhere too was that, okay, if and when Alabama does slip, that Clemson is positioned to be that team to, 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 to step up and, 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 and be that top dog. So the painful part, for them right now is not just that they're not that team. Alabama's slipping. They're not that team, but the team down in Athens is, is that team. Is that, I mean, you, you agree with that, that that's, that has to compound the heartache that, wow. Um, you know, one of their chief rivals in recruiting, one of their chief rivals on the field, traditionally um, a coach they don't really like and Kirby smart is that that's the new Alabama. I and mean, it is really, it's inescapable at this point. And I guess we have and, to underscore the thing, about, the thing about Georgia, too, and, and this was the thing that impressed me so much about the Tennessee game, is like there's no smoke and mirrors there. There was no magic tricks. There was no exotic schemes. No, uh, you know, hit you with like five big plays. Like no finesse to it. That was just we're going to put 22 guys out on a football field and whip your ass. Like that's what Georgia did to Tennessee. And I think Tennessee is a legitimately good team. So like – you know, it's not, it, there's no, you can, you can talk about Clemson's quarterback issue and say like, okay, well put Trevor Lawrence back there again. And, and Clemson's much better. And that, that's true. But look at Georgia. Who's their quarterback. Stetson Bennett is not more talented than probably anyone that Clemson has on their roster. I mean, Hunter, Hunter Johnson was recruited far higher than, than, uh, than Stetson Bennett was. So, I mean, I, I just, <laughs> excuse me I, I look at georgia and i say like 
it feels like a thing that is built to sustain itself because it doesn't require greatness everywhere all the time because they're so darn good everywhere consistently. Yeah. I think you, I love Stetson Bennett. Um, I don't think he's like an Greg McElroy <laughs> or. No, uh, yeah, I agree. Better than that. Yeah. The, the, the mobility is the key thing. Um, you know, all last year, this time last year, there was just a chorus of, "Oh my God, when are they gonna? When are they gonna put in um, JT Daniels? That's the one who can take him to the top." And I kept saying, "Like, he can't move. JT Daniels yeah. is not mobile. That is such a key ingredient, and it most certainly was uh, in their game last week against Tennessee with him squirting outside and and showing, just sort of surprising the defense with how fast he was." Well, this is. Um you know, I always said I think I thought that was Deshaun Watson's single greatest strength is like the plays where nothing really happened. He just like moved three inches in the pocket mm. and kept the play alive. Uh, and I thought he did it better than almost any quarterback I've, I've ever seen. Um, but the, it's not it's you don't have to be Kyler Murray, right, or Lamar Jackson. But I really think in like the modern game, like you, I, I, I just don't know that you can be Peyton Manning anymore. Like I think you've got to. I mean, unless you're like Tom Brady level accuracy, I think you've got to have some mobility enough that like you can hold your own. And, um, you know, I, we've seen that with Clemson's offense too, over the last few years is like they they ran Trevor more when they needed more help offensively. Um, I thought, you know, the biggest difference in, in DJ's success to me this year is that he has been able to, maneuver better in the pocket and behind the line of scrimmage, but I still don't think he's ever been, he is a guy who the more you get him off his place, the more he's apt to struggle, I think. And that's, if you, if you want to say it's time to turn the page to Cade Klubnik, I think that's the biggest reason to say to do it. I don't, I don't know that I buy that. Um, and I don't know that Cade has shown us anything outside of that one drive in the Georgia tech game to make you think that like, he's going to be, if given a longer leash, much better. But I think that is the one area where you say like, he's definitely more mobile of the two. And he's definitely the guy who looks more comfortable making plays on the move of the two. With DJ, the story of the progression of DJ, have you ever, can you recall any similar story or trajectory to two years ago? Oh my God, they've got another quarterback right in line with Trevor and Deshaun to last year. Oh my God, does this guy know how to throw a forward pass to the first six, seven games this year? Wow. What an amazing story. He's, uh, he's back to being uh, an elite quarterback to now. It's like, (laughs) is he back to 2021? Have you, can you, is there a comparison out there to this? I don't think there is. And I mean, even like before the season, I remember doing like a deep dive on stats and trying to find, anybody who had like a, a similar situation to DJ, the, the closest I could come up with was Keaton Slovis who had like a really hot start at USC in his freshman year and then declined markedly. Um, but that narrative has, you know, doesn't really add up anymore either because you didn't get the sort of bounce back curve. Like, I mean, it's a roller coaster with him to say the least. And, you know, I I don't know what the answer is here, um, and I'm glad I'm not the one who has to find it out. I, a, as you, I'm sure, well know, like 
there's not a more likable guy in the world than DJ Oyungle. Like that dude you want to root for because he is the ultimate team player, good guy. But like when he's good, it's you see it and you're like, oh yeah, I see it. And then he's bad and you're like, how does he ever complete a pass? And I it's uh there's what's the um the the dialogue at the beginning of rounders where Matt Damon's talking about no limit hold'em and he's like, there's pros even that won't play this because they can't stand the swings. Mm. That's what DJ is, man. It's just that you're <laughs> like it rips your heart out and then builds you right back up and then rips your heart out again. I I don't know if you watched the Notre Dame game closely. I don't know if you watched Dabo's post game press conference. Either of the two, both of the two. Yeah, I was at the well. I was at the Syracuse one, and I've seen whatever the clips of. I see Notre Dame. Um, I've never. Well, first of all, I I don't. I think that's the worst loss of the Dabo era, all things considered, considering the stakes, considering how talented they are, considering the other team wasn't that good or great. Um, at the, and I also think that was as low as I can remember him after a game. Yeah. Are you, this week, I mean, did you have the, you have the same, a similar reaction in terms of, wow, this, this is a, this seems like a big deal or is it more, in, in your mind, like I think you like you were saying, oh, it's just turnovers and they can turn this thing around. I, I oddly, I think it's maybe a little of both. Like I don't think the sky is as falling as it feels, like it might be, but it also can be one of those things where perception becomes reality. And and I mean, to your point, like look, there's been gut punch losses: the Pittsburgh loss, the Syracuse loss in seventeen, like games where you're just like how in God's name did that just happen? But like you always kind of walk away feeling like it was a blip, like it wasn't representative of the larger picture. Like that felt a little bit like, you know, maybe this is the trend line we've been on. And um, you know, I, I don't know. I think it requires some very hard looks in the mirror and it's going to require some very hard decisions too. And I was like, I get why you made the move from DJ to Cade against Syracuse when you did. The part that bothered me was only letting Cade throw four passes after that. Like, because you opened up this Pandora's box of a QB situation to get four passes out of a guy. And then if you hadn't done that, I think you sort of can look at this now like, okay, well, if DJ had led the comeback in against Syracuse, and then you have the Notre Dame game. And you say, like, all right, that's the blip. Now it feels more like a trend. I'm not sure if it actually is, but, like, it's all about how you're going to handle this. Like, uh, to me, like, I, the defense needs to be playing better. Like, that, they've gotten off a little bit on the fact that, like, they've been good, but we expected this to be a top-five defense in the country, and they have not been that. Like, the, the play calling, I think, helped DJ a lot early in the year, but, like, Will Shipley needs more touches than he's getting, bottom line, period. Um, like DJ has been fine, but if you don't think that he's the guy you can win with, you got to get off the soapbox of like, y'all didn't believe in him. And I do. And just say, we're going to go out and play this guy that I think gives us the better shot to win today. So again, I'm not in a position to tell you why any of those things are happening or what the right thing to do is. I just know there's a lot of like hard looks in the mirror that have to be had. And if you navigate that, I don't think all is lost, but navigating that 
that road is not going to be an easy thing to do. See, I think Dabo has adjusted his public sort of handling of the quarterback situation. So after the Syracuse game, it was, oh, pff, DJ's our guy. I, I, we're gonna, I'm gonna, y'all can just go ahead and write that right now. Blah, 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 blah. He's going to have his best game against Notre Dame, full confidence, but he's got to perform. You know, he, he, had, he added that caveat, whereas now I think the position is more like, hey, man, yeah, we got to get Cade some more snaps and still believe in DJ, but it's much more conditional, I think, at least the way I'm reading it, which I think is the proper, the proper play and the proper sort of touch. But I think the problem, David, is <laughs> you're used to your freshman five-star backup being really, 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 really good. And, and you throw him in there and he makes an obvious case that he's the guy. Well, that ain't happened yet. And, and so I, what I, what I agree with them on, at least I think their position is, Hey, we have a, not a great situation right now with DJ playing poorly and with Cade not really being ready, but we feel like DJ still gives us, the best chance to win, but we're not, I don't think they're, they're, I don't think they're saying we're fully confident in that, but he has the edge right now is the way that I, if I put myself in the minds of the coaches or, or what I perceive at least. I don't, I mean, that's probably a very accurate representation of the situation, but I just wonder how much you can fence straddle. Like I, I almost wonder if you've got at this point, you've got to say like, I'd rather, we're going to build for the future. And if it means we got to lose a couple with Cade for him to be better in 23, then that's what we're going to do. But we got to get him the reps or we think we got a shot at the playoff and we believe DJ's the guy that can do it. And we can't have him looking over his shoulder, you know, after every uh, three and out. I, like, I, I think the fence straddling is straddling for a reason because I don't think there is a good answer, but it's almost sort of one of those things where you, you know, you just cover your eyes and you clip the blue wire, hoping that's the one that doesn't blow you up. <laughs> uh, great with the analogies. Um, okay, so the offense, we spent all off season kind of expecting the offense to to take its lumps and to not be very good. And as you noted a minute ago, we did expect the defense to be really good and perhaps even carry this team to the playoff. That's been the, by far, the most surprising thing. Is they, they have not been good, Dave. They, they have not, they've had spurts of greatness. Second half against Syracuse. Uh, some, some stretches against Florida State. Maybe some stretches in the opener against Georgia Tech. Otherwise, uh, and, uh, NC State, that's not fair for me to not mention that. They were really good yeah. against NC State. They found their bearings in that game. But, man, that's been the real jaw dropper to me uh, yeah and, and and i think like to your point like it, they have been good like in the way that like a top 30 defense is good right like that's you're in the top quarter 25 percentile or whatever um but we expected this to be a unit that was not just great but like could dictate a game like that's when, when you say like who is this team that's what we expected, Clemson. It's it's a team you just you worry about having to go line up against them. You're going to come out of that game hurting, and that just hasn't happened. And I mean, even like you look at the Florida State game, and I agree, there was a a stretch in like the 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 middle two quarters basically of the Florida State game where that defense played really really well, and, and the FSU O line that I thought had made big strides. I was like, oh man, 
they can't block a thing here. And Clemson's defense just took it to them and utterly dictated the tenor of that game. And you'd think, well, that's going to beat Florida State down into oblivion. And it didn't. Florida State came right back in the fourth quarter and played well. Like, I, I want to see a Clemson defense that isn't just playing at a high level, you know, executionally, but it, with the intensity is so much that the other team just doesn't want to be out on the field with them. And that's, you know, you get that with Georgia. And I feel like you've gotten that. I mean, hell, Iowa can do that. Like, it's it's about culture. It's about uh, your your approach. And this team is just not, it doesn't have that. And uh, I, I'm not somebody, I'm a numbers person, right? And I think you can look at the numbers and say, like, Clemson's still been pretty good. But, like, there's something more to it than that, this intimidation factor, the physicality, whatever it is, that uh, you just don't see it with this Clemson defense, uh, at least not on any sort of an, ex- an extended basis for a full four quarters. There have been some eye-opening quotes from some coaches and players in recent weeks, not, e- not just this week. Uh, a few days after the Florida State game, Nick Eason, the first-year defensive tackles coach, uh, he was obviously not in a great mood because they had just given up 200-plus rushing yards uh, to Florida State, let him back in the game. He said, we're trying to find that eye of the tiger that you have to have. He said, but then he said, you know, you're either born with it or you're not. <laughs> um, that gets... So, so- I, I should, I'm glad you said this because I want to tell you this good story. This will be this will take us this will this will take remove some of the uh, uh, severity of this conversation. So <laughs> uh, I just I just wrote this story on Drake May, who it, he is awesome. Like Drake May is freaking talented. So anyway, I was up in Carolina and uh, chatting with Mac Brown about Drake May, and this exact conversation came up where it's like. Now, you always talk about those QBs that have it. And I said to Mac, I was like, one day, like, I feel like this is sort of in my wheelhouse of stories. Like, I want to define it. Like, what is it? Because I, I like, it's it's one of those things. Like, you, you're around somebody that has it. And you're like, that guy's got it. And he's like, oh, I got a good story for you. So this is Mac Brown's story. He says um, he was first year at Texas. He's out on the field uh, at, like, uh, recruiting camp or something with uh, uh, Daryl Royal. And uh, – High school coach comes up to Royal Max standing next to him. He says, uh, "High school coach is like, uh, coach up. You know, I just I, I think you're great, and I want to be just like you. I want to I want to be just like you. What what you know? What what advice can you give me?" Daryl Royal and it's like Southern accent's like, "Well, son, you know, <laughs> you got to have it. And, you know, if you're born with it, you're gonna always have it. And if you ain't born with it, you're never gonna find it. You got to have it." And Max, like, you know, nodding along, like, yeah, that's okay, that's right, yeah. Coach, the high school coach is like, all right, coach, man, I appreciate that. Thank you. Walks away. Royal turns to Mac Brown. He says, I'll tell you, that guy did not have it. <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, and, uh, man. And that's this great. is why Mac Brown should really just be doing the podcast with you because it'd be so much better. <laughs> well, so then, uh, let's see, K.J. Henry kind of said some of the same, some similar vein, I think a week later after the Syracuse game. <clears throat> and then this week, Wes Goodwin is being asked about, uh, you know, the leadership on the, on the defensive line and 
why they wilted like they did, why, why the, uh, the, the, the mentality wasn't where it was supposed to be against Notre Dame. And he said, you know, I think young people these days, they have their, uh, you know, outside influences, you know, he started to talk about that. And I'm like, whoa. He, but then yeah, he, he, quick, yeah. he, he quickly he quickly changed to, oh, well, I have full confidence in the mentality of this defensive line. Well, then last night, Dabo was on with us um, after practice, and I, th- I believe it was – I forgot. I think Matt Connolly asked him, um, you know, the search for more vocal leader types on the defensive side. And he goes, we'll see. He said, we, we need an alpha dog. We need some alpha dogs. We'll see. And, I mean, it was just, again, with Dabo, he, he's speaking to so many different people when he's in front of a microphone that sometimes you have to read between the lines. And you read yeah. between the lines there, and it's like, whoa, something ain't right. And it just, uh, you know, I think I wonder how much like they were aware of this even before the season. Cause I, I can recall, you know, people asking about how special this defensive line was going to be. And Dabo would always be like, well, you know, you want to compare them to that, you know, 14 group or the 18 group. And I don't know, man, you know, those guys, those guys were, were alpha dogs. Those guys got after it. Those guys worked every day. They just loved the grind. And like the way that he talked, like, he was very careful to not set that mm. expectation for this group. And at first I just kind of thought, well, like, yeah, that's every, you know, you've ever crowned somebody before you can crown them. But I wonder how much that was sort of in his head of like, I wonder if we've got the grinders the way that we did with Christian Wilkins and, and Dexter Lawrence or Grady Jarrett and Vic Beasley. Like I, I you know, I think those are good questions. I mean, I've talked to people who were around that 18 defensive line and they say that, those dudes were just a holes <laughs> to the to everybody yeah. else and to, to the offensive linemen. They're jerking their beards. They're tripping them up. I mean, every 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 minute out there in practice was competition, and it was getting in your head. They want to drink your blood, you know. Yeah, and, I mean that's what Venables used to say. Is like it wasn't even the game for them. It was like they had so much fun beating the hell out of you during the week. <laughs> but the game was almost like an extra. And it was the icing on the cake. And it really, as we draw Alabama back into the conversation, it, it I think it's fair to ask, with Alabama and Clemson, has some complacency, uh, natural complacency, human complacency, entered the, the equation in a way that is really jarring when you compare to what we saw in Athens last Saturday. Bloodthirsty, yeah. relentless, ruthless, um, that's the type of stuff you used to see. I don't want to overstate uh, from one result. We do that all the time, and it's annoying. But I think it's fair to talk about. Well, you know, it's a little bit of like, you know, fight or flight, right? So you have these guys who have been successful their whole lives, and they come to a place that is used to being where the expectation is success. And then, you know, you get kicked in your knees, you get punched in the jaw, and you go down. And then these guys aren't trained to know whether you get back up or whether you run away. Right. Like, I, I think that's when we talk about it sometimes, that's a little bit of it too, is that like you, you fight, you get, you get knocked down, you keep fighting and angrier the next time. And like, I remember dealing with this a lot. So I covered Florida state in 13 when they won the national championship. And I will tell you like as good as James Winston was a huge chunk of the mentality of that Florida state team that got them that national championship was just 
how many times they've been kicked in the teeth in 2011 and 2012 when they thought they were there and they weren't there yet. And they carried that feeling around with them for all of 2013 and beat the living daylights out of everybody as punishment for it. And then you get to 2014 and a lot of those guys who had been through the real pain of the growing period of Florida state weren't there anymore. And it was a lot of recruits that had come in or people who had only had success. And then life got hard again. And in 14, they were okay. They got past it because Jameis was just a next level type of competitor. And then 15 comes around and he's not there to bail them out anymore. And you've seen what's happened to the Florida state program since then. I'm not in any way suggesting Alabama or Clemson is on that trajectory, but I think it's very like, if you don't, have sort of the anger of having failed to carry with you a little bit. And, and certainly, you know, certainly the 14 Clemson defense did, but I mean, that 18 team, you know, they, they came back because they were angry, right? Like they came back to play another year because they were angry and had something to prove. I just wonder how much there's like anger or frustration because those are, those can feel very similar, but they're two very different things. Mm. We've talked about decisions Dabo has to make regarding a position, meaning quarterback. Well, we can't talk about all this stuff without talking about decisions he made with his coaching staff. Um, If they don't turn this around, if it's not a pleasing season, do you think it's – I mean, I I think a lot of people thought this was, you know, presented this as a crossroads season where the Dabo way was either going to be vindicated or – Exposed. I don't know if I totally believed that because, I mean, you can have – it's possible to have two substandard seasons in a row and still be yeah. – you know, still get back. But given that he made those uh, uh, extraordinary – I guess not extraordinary hires, but, I mean, he went way against the grain. They're, they're experiments. I mean, there's no, yeah. there's no precedent. And I'm, I'm not saying this out of criticism. But just as a matter of fact, there's no precedent for – um a guy like Wes Goodwin going from where he did sort of on the ladder chain of command to where he, to, to, to that job to replace a, a, a coach as decorated as Brent Venables. So I'm just curious how much, how much skepticism do you have sort of now about those moves and about the idea of, Hey, he should have at least gone out and, you know, hired more experience. You know, I, I don't have a problem with making this a, a bit of a referendum on Dabo because he asked for that. I mean, there was not like – he didn't sit up at a press conference and say like, you know, here is the resume for these guys and why they deserve this job. He said, I've won a whole hell of a lot of games mm. here and you all ought to trust me. Mm. And so – and that's not an unreasonable thing to say. Like, he's right. But the flip side of that is like you go against the grain like that and now like we trusted you – now, like, do we have – and part of me wants to say I think the, the reason it's – I don't see it as a referendum on Davo this year is I'm just – I'm not sure we have the answer to the question yet. Because, again, it's not like the offense or the defense has been awful. They just haven't been what we want them to be consistently enough. And, you know, Goodwin in particular, I mean, I, I think it's quite clearly a huge personality shift from – Venables to, to Goodwin, but that was going to happen anywhere because Brent Venables is a lunatic that is one of a, one of a kind. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, was was Goodwin slow to make adjustments in the Wake Forest game? Was he slow to make adjustments 
um, you know, in uh, last week against Notre Dame in the, in the run game, like has, does he have command of the locker room to really inspire the way that you want? Like some of these things are just stuff you do have to learn on the job. Like you gotta, there's a, there's a learning curve. There's a, a, a growing uh, pains that come along with this. And, and I don't think you announce this as a mistake because uh, some mistakes were made. It's sort of about, do you learn from the mistakes? Now, I think you can criticize Dabo and say Clemson isn't type isn't the type of place where you learn on a job, um, but that's the decision he made. It doesn't mean that that the Goodwin can't be a good defensive coordinator, or a great defensive coordinator down the road. Um, I think a lot of this will be told by you know what we see from Clemson the next four four games uh, through the ACC championship game. I mean, I, I, there's a lot on the line to me whether or not they make the playoff because. Um, I think what, how you, again, to sort of get back to it, like how you get up after you've been knocked down says a lot more about you than, um, you know, what it's like just living in the, in the penthouse. More reading of body language. I could be wrong, but my read of his demeanor during the game at Notre Dame and after the game was that he was not just uh, upset at how his players handled that it seemed to me also very upset at his coaches as well. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, think about like they got lucky to win the Syracuse game. That should have been an alarm clock going off saying y'all got to get better. They had an off week to get better yeah. and they came out and they were worse. Like there's no other way around that. Did you see what Tommy Reese said after the game? Notre Dame's offensive coordinator. So he, he he's up in the box and he earlier than normal. He, he came. He went down to celebrate. Oh yeah, yeah. With, with the players, and it's like, whoa, what you know? What if they get the ball back? Like, who's going to call the plays? I mean, they were. It was decided, but it was still odd to see him down there that early. Right. And he, they asked him about it, and he said, "Yeah, oh yeah, I just, I just really wanted to celebrate with everybody on the sideline and." And they said, well, what if something would have happened? He said, oh, I just told the guys in the box, eh, if we get the ball, just run duo. I mean, duo is that play they ran like 92 yeah. times. I mean, that is the ultimate. If if I'm in Clemson's football office, I'm playing that, not because I'm mad at Notre Dame, but more like this. I mean, that's the lowest of lows, is, is losing yeah. like that, getting it shoved down your throat, and then having a, you know, one of their coaches say, well, oh, yeah, I just, I just don't run that same play that, we yeah, averaged you like could have just like hit on. the re- repeat button on Spotify <laughs> to play the same song over and over again. Like uh, you, you could have pulled a fan out of the stands and put them on the microphone, and they could have said that. Like that's that's. I mean, it's a huge indictment. Of and, and again, I mean, you look back at the Syracuse or the Syracuse the Wake Forest game, and it's like they're just getting beat doing the same thing again and again and again. And you know, I remember Dabo after that game saying, like, I was about to go out there and play quarterback myself if we couldn't fix this, what I kind of read, talk about reading between the lines is what I kind of read was, I just told my coaches, if we don't do something differently, something bad's going to happen. Like you can't just keep doing the same thing and expecting it to work out better when you're just getting whipped like that. I don't have a lot of confidence that Clemson beats Louisville. Um, what about you? Yeah. Um, sort of like 55, 45 Clemson mm-hmm. right now, I think. Yeah, that's about um, where I am. I, you know, I'm, th- th- to your point, the Louisville defense has looked really good. 
And that is not the defense that I want to see when I'm having some turnover problems uh, because they will take advantage of that. That said, um, Louisville's offense is awfully one-dimensional. Clemson's defense has the athletes, I think, to corral Malik more than most. Um, And Look, I mean, I I also have seen um, Louisville's defense look pretty darn bad as they did against Ole Miss earlier in the season. So I tend to think that this is an opportunity for Clemson, but one where they cannot in any way mail this in because you do and you're going to get beat. But I think Clemson is the better team here. I mean, regardless of what we've seen the last few weeks, Clemson is the better team here. Maybe my view of it is colored by this morning. I watched last year's Louisville Clemson game and I watched a better defense, a better Clemson defense have a lot of trouble with Malik Cunningham and the triple option and all that stuff. So who knows? I'll probably end up looking like an idiot by being so, uh, so, so skeptical, I guess, or so not all in, I guess, so to speak, of a Clemson win. But first time, uh, first time Clemson is a seven or a seven point or less touchdown or less underdog is an unranked team at home since 2014 when Steve Spurrier paid his last visit to Clemson. So I'm, I'm very glad that I introduced you to the joys.com's <laughs> oh, historical betting uh, information, by the way. So. Fantastic database there. David, um, man, you've been really generous with your time, especially uh, under the weather. Hope you get to feeling better, and um, man, have a have a great weekend. Should be should be a lot of fun as every weekend is in college football. Well, I'm uh, always happy to do it for you, Larry. Anything, and uh, if I can't talk tomorrow, uh, that's <laughs> everybody everybody around me will probably thank you for this. All right, thank you, sir. Yep. Okay, just a reminder: I have <clears throat> total editorial control of this podcast therefore if clemson comes out and smokes louisville tomorrow i reserve the right to totally trash delete (laughs) this podcast so it's never heard from again appreciate david hale for joining us once again also appreciate the support of our sponsors for helping make this happen and of course most of all thanks to all of you for listening really appreciate it everybody be safe cheers